Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and my friend, uh, Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, hello. I'm really your How friend. How are you, my friend? Oh. <laughs> Did you, you didn't know that? Uh, I mean, I had my suspicions, but I didn't want to presume, I, you know. Yeah, well, what what are uh, well? We're, I mean, we're certainly you know um, journalism partners. I suppose you know uh, business partners, as it were. Um, and uh, but I think you know I, I'd call you a friend. Well, thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> sure, it's interesting. You have uh, you have managed, as you are wont to do, to uh, to thank me, perhaps even to be genuinely touched, and yet to avoid assiduously any reciprocity. Are you are you feeling a little bit like the high school boyfriend who says I love you and wants to hear it back? No, I, I'm not feeling like that. Uh, that wouldn't be um, a reasonable, accurate, uh, or comfortable characterization of our uh, one-sided friendship. Um, <laughs> I have long I, considered um, you a friend, JD. Oh, whoa, whoa, okay. Well, I just didn't, you know, I just didn't know. In fact, I think I titled one of the previous episodes of this podcast, JD and Ed are still friends. Oh, that's right. That's right, because we had a little to-do. We did. I had forgotten. I had uh, I had forgotten about that. Okay, well, um, how are you, my friend? I'm I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, busy days. Yeah, we we've been busy. We have uh, been making a lot of news, and we'll continue to be making a lot of news um, uh, in the uh, in even in the hours to come. We're recording this podcast on Thursday afternoon, and you and I are sort of taking a break from the busyness of reporting some news, even as we speak. Yeah, we've had a few things up this week. We're going to have a a few more up. Uh, tomorrow and uh, of course also tomorrow night is uh, is drinks tomorrow night we're having a very uh, cool event if you listen to this podcast but you don't get or read all the way through uh, the pillar post which is the newsletter that um, Ed and I take turns um, emailing out um, to uh, to people who are, are signed up to get it anyhow if you listen to this podcast but you don't get the pillar post then you, you might not know or you don't read it all the way through then you might not know that we have uh, launched some events that uh, that I'm pretty excited about. So um, th- the nature of the event is this. We basically invited listeners to sign up for these, uh, I guess you would say, Zoom calls uh, just to like on, on uh, a couple of them are on Friday night. One's not on a Friday night. It's on like a Tuesday night or something like that. But basically to sign up for these Zoom calls with us, basically just to hang out and talk about the life of the church and talk about, um, not, I, I don't want it to just be talking about our work, but talk about our work, but also talk about kind of the experience of, uh, of, of our listeners or readers in, in the life of the church, questions that they have about um, our news coverage or thought th- thoughts that they have about our news coverage or its many, many deficiencies. And uh, so it's just really kind of like a hang, hang out, as it were. Uh, we're calling them Drinks with the Pillar because we're not very creative. Um, so we're calling them Drinks with the Pillar. Because yeah, I'm going the, to be drinking. Well, I'm going to be drinking too, Ed. I, I'm going to be drinking. In fact, so, in fact, I have been thinking uh, about what what it is I'm going to drink, uh, as I'm sure you have too. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm. I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm. I sit at my desk musing about the first drink of a Friday evening. That that might be no, considered no, not, unhealthy. Not uh, but no, I I think I. Well, I mean, given the hour, I'll probably have a stiff martini. I, you know, why not? Well, there you are. There you are. Okay, this is. I'm so glad you said martini because here's something kind of interesting that I meant to put in my newsletter on Tuesday and I forgot to, uh, but it's pretty interesting, so I'll share it with you now. So you know St. Charles Seminary in Philadelphia? I do. 
Okay, so St. Charles Seminary in Philadelphia announced a few years ago that it was going to be selling uh, part of its property. First, they talked about selling a portion of their property, but then they talked about selling uh, all of their property. Um, uh, and eventually, they decided that they would do that. That basically, St. Charles, a great seminary, is on a very large piece of property in kind of Philadelphia's main line. Um, have you ever been there? I have driven sort of around one side of it. I haven't. I, I've never been allowed inside or given a tour or anything like that. Well, I have been inside many times. In fact, I think I might have even recorded a podcast episode. I have. Uh, I was at the seminary once because I was helping the Archdiocese of Philadelphia with something, and and I stayed at the seminary and I recorded a podcast episode there. So it's a part, really, of 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 our own history of podcasting. At any rate, uh, it is St. Charles Seminary in Mainline Philadelphia is a palatial um, set of buildings. I mean, just. Old school, in East Coast institutional church, large, gorgeous, expensive oil paintings on um, uh, walls in uh, in old stone buildings with beautiful stained glass and beautiful churches and, um, you know, all the things that are expensive infrastructure to maintain and built at a time when there were probably more residents in the seminary than there are now on a large piece of property that's very valuable in a church that is trying ever more to, to focus um, its temporal goods and assets on things which are um, immediately things which are the immediate mission its immediate missional needs rather than maintaining these big properties. So uh, they sold the thing, and uh, they're moving to um, basically what they're going to do is 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 uh, is buy. Um, I, I don't know if they're going to buy or they're going to lease, but they're basically going to have um, uh, a property on like 15 acres on the on a on a university kind of in suburban Philadelphia called Gwynedd Mercy. And uh, and Gwynedd Mercy is a Catholic college that is in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And here's where it gets kind of interesting, at least from my perspective. So uh, Gwynedd Mercy University was uh, founded by the Sisters of Mercy in 1948, kind of, you know, after the war when a lot of people had GI bills and a lot of schools were getting founded. Um, it's like on a big campus, you know, in outside of Philadelphia, like 320. 20 acres or something like that. And the property was uh, once um, the farm of uh, a banker named Francis Bond. And uh, Francis Bond um, had a son who was a uh, an ornithologist. And uh, his name was James. This ornithologist was named James Bond. Well, <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to bring this into land to jump back to martinis. But there you are. Oh, a novelist named Ian Fleming had the idea of writing a series of novels about a British spy uh, who was cool, who liked martinis, who liked them shaken, not stirred, and who would have a cool name. And he was struggling with a name. He was looking and looking and looking for a name uh, of his uh, spy until he came across uh, in the library a book called Birds of the West Indies by James Bond. And he thought, Bond, James Bond, that'll be the name. So... That's the thing. You have added to my sum total of knowledge today. Thank you. So the seminary is going to be on – basically what I'm saying is the seminary – the St. Charles Seminary is moving to James Bond's house. <laughs> I mean that's tr that's just straight up true. It, that, that, is, that is true. Yeah. Cool. Uh, that's great. I, I hope they will have Vespers at cocktail hour. Yeah. I mean how could they not really? I mean it's the thing. Yeah. What I wonder is what kind of black ops they're going to be running out of there. I hope none. 
Me too. We Me don't too. need any more independent investigations at seminaries. I I hope that it, that it will be wonderful. And this uh, is true. I'm just saying they have a spy. They have a sort of spy. I I hope that the guys. I hope that periodically the guys, you know, show up in a smart dinner jacket for uh, for chapel. Is all I'm saying. That would be nice. Yeah, yeah it'd be cool. Yeah, dressing for dinner is important. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, that's the that's everything I want to talk about today. Oh. Okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> so do I get to pick a square on the board then? You always get to pick a square on the board, my friend. All right. I'd like to talk about, uh, let's talk about Hong Kong, JD. Oh, okay. I'd like to talk about Hong Kong. Because some stuff happened after uh, last week when we recorded and happened over last weekend, which um, I, I worry people have sort of tuned out because... Yeah, there's so much happening right now that I think it's possible people might have tuned it out, but it is important. Yeah. Um, you know, there has been in, in July, on July 1st last year, the, the mainland government imposed and brought in this national security law uh, in Hong Kong, which basically criminalizes as a effectively a terrorist activity, um, speaking against the government, uh, the Communist Party, uh, or, or anything like that. And they've been slowly ratcheting up more and more things, you know, people who have a history of engaging in pro-democracy speech have been barred from uh, running for public office in Hong Kong. There's There's been the imposition of a so-called patriotism test uh, for people who are now going to serve in the Hong Kong legislature. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it is, Hong Kong is increasingly being turned into a mini mainland uh, in, in terms of its laws and how, and how they're applied. And because just quite, if, if you don't know the history of Hong Kong, basically Hong Kong was for 99 years a British territory um, uh, a British ter- a British overseas territory connected to to China, but not China, and um, the British had basically a ninety nine year lease on the governance of oversight of Hong Kong, which expired in nineteen ninety seven. At which point, Hong Kong became uh, sort of called a special administrative region of China, um, which is to say that it was a part of China, but it was allowed to operate like a Western nation with a, a freer economy and uh, a freer, uh, w- along with that, a freer society in terms of the exchange of ideas and the right to assemble and those kinds of things. However, yeah, the civil it, liberties that they have gotten, that they were used to under... And democratic uh, elections. Yeah, and things like that. They were all included in what's called the basic law of Hong Kong, which is sort of its governing constitution, which was uh, approved at the time of the handover. And I mean, all the bits of it that mattered have basically been abrogated. In, in very in recent years, under the sort of one China idea of Xi Jinping, has sort of fallen into disrepair. The the special administrative status of China of Hong Kong is that uh, fair I, to say? No, I or don't been rested into it, disrepair. I was going to say actively vandalized, but yeah, yeah okay. fair enough. Yeah, okay. So so at any rate, there has been a major transformation of Hong Kong society over the last three years. Yeah. And, yeah, and so what happened uh, most recently over the last weekend was uh, a number of people who've been arrested for attending uh, seditious and un, um, unauthorized public gatherings uh, have been sort of working their way through the court system there. One of them is Jimmy Lay, who is the who's the sort of billionaire businessman entrepreneur and, and owner of one of the last sort of editorially free publications in Hong Kong. People say uh, it's the last... Arrested. To, uh, it's the last publication that uh, Apple Daily is the last publication sort of uh, in defense of democracy and not sort of completely capitulating towards the Beijing sort of party line with regard to Hong Kong. It's certainly the last one that appears uh, willing to take a, a directly antagonistic uh, um, line against the, the mainland Communist Party. Anyway, Jimmy Lay has been uh, arrested on a number of counts uh, 
and charged with a range of offenses, but the one for which he was sentenced and jailed uh, last weekend was for attending a prayer vigil right. in support of democracy, actually prior to the imposition of the national security law. He did this in 2019. Yeah. Uh, and it was against a, an extradition law that the mainland was trying to get passed in Hong Kong, and it failed. And we don't need to go through all that again. But, I mean, along with him is, uh, you know, a, a long-serving member of Hong Kong's Democratic Party in the in the governing legislature of Hong Kong, who served, I think, nearly 15 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also convicted uh, for attending an unlawful, by which we mean pro-democracy assembly. Uh, you know, the, in total, it looks like Jimmy Lay is going to be spending about 14 months in prison. He's obviously also a very public and prominent Catholic. He, he um, is a Catholic convert, a self-made, sort of self-made billionaire and also a Catholic convert, and 73 years old. So to spend, when you say to spend 14 months in a Chinese prison, about a 73-year-old, um, you know, that's not insignificant it's not insignificant um and i mean other other pro-democracy activists uh, have been arrested charged and convicted and are currently being jailed people like agnes chow uh, who's another catholic and was a you know a prominent leader of sort of uh, student democracy movements and things during university days uh, also in the last week i think the uh the um i think it was a culture minister a government minister from the mainland referred to the uh, Hong Kong student, Hong Kong University Student Union, as a as a um, tumor that had to be excised from the university. I mean, the the human rights situation in Hong Kong is deteriorating incredibly fast, uh, yeah. and it's it's happening in full view of the world. And it, I find it slightly terrifying because you know no one is doing anything about it. No one seems to care. And, you know, you've had various uh, government legislatures issue sort of, you know, sternly worded resolutions of objection. But, you know, it doesn't help the people in Hong Kong at all. Um, and, and at the same time, the church has not been unaffected by all of this. You know, we've reported right. in the past that uh, Catholic schools have been told by the archdiocese or sorry, by the diocese of Hong Kong to make sure that patriotic values are instilled in students. And uh, the priests of Hong Kong have been told they can't. Um, touch uh any sort of contentious political issues uh in their homilies and if they have to then they should you know have a have a priority of um what was the reassuring and um basically lulling the the congregation into a into a sense of well everything will be fine really even though it's not uh so all that's happening we talked over the weekend to friends of ours in hong kong including um, a, a priest there and they said that, you know, it's if you're living in the church in Hong Kong right now, you are very aware that the imprisonment of Jimmy Lay is, it's an example being made, that this is a guy who is pro-democracy, um, pro-free press, pro-free speech, and very visibly Catholic, and his being sent to jail at the age of 73 um, for attending a prayer vigil is, you know, it's it's not a very well-coded message. Uh, to other people, and you know the and these things are are linked from a Catholic perspective. That you know when the when you hear communist officials calling uh, the the student union at Hong Kong University a cancerous cell, um, a, a lot of the students that have been most active in the pro democracy movement over the last uh, two decades have basically also had something else in common, which is very often a Catholic education. That this is where they get mm-hmm. their um, you right. know their sense of human rights and human dignity and um, civil rights that this is something they've they've had as a result of their catholic education and so when you see things like instructions from the diocese of hong kong basically telling teachers to make sure that you know you 
you Chinese the heck out of the curriculum and make sure everyone salutes the flag. Um, you know, that that is part of a concerted effort to sort of squeeze the the Catholic character of those schools so that it's more in conformity with, you know, mainland communist nationalistic propaganda. Um, and at the same time, we have this huge uh, division in in the church in Hong Kong in the Diocese of Hong Kong that it, you know it would not be accurate to describe um, your average congregation in a church in Hong Kong as a bunch of you know radical pro Democrats who hate the mainland government that in fact there there's definitely a split amongst the Catholics in Hong Kong of those who are you know consider themselves to be as indeed they are Chinese citizens um, and proud Chinese and you know if not overly sympathetic or overtly um, sympathetic to the Chinese Communist Party and the mainland system of government are at least, you know, prepared to say, well, we live in China. This is, you know, it's what it is and aren't necessarily yeah. looking for a fight. Um, and then you do have definitely a sizable section of, of the faithful in Hong Kong who consider uh, the Chinese government to be a threat, not just to civil liberties, but to religious liberty and, you know, the imposition of communist ideology in schools, um, in the public square, is is of its nature limiting the freedom to announce the gospel and to live the faith. Uh, they they tend to be the the younger end of of Catholics in Hong Kong, from what I understand. But this is definitely a split that's going on, and of course, overarching all this is there is no bishop of Hong Kong, um, right? And hasn't been for a couple of years now. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and we're not sure when there will be. There's been difficulty in getting a bishop of Hong Kong um, because. Um, the Congregation for Evangeliz- the Evangelization of Peoples, which is um, Prop Fide, the, the Vatican Congregation, which is sort of charged with um, with appointing bishops in missionary parts of the world, as the Church classifies them, which would include Hong Kong, has had trouble sort of, first of all, even figuring out, at first had trouble figuring out kind of what <laughs> what they should be looking for, whether they should be, um, whether they should be looking for, whether they would be able to uh, propose a bishop who was... Uh, um, aligned with the protesters and pro-democracy movement as their first candidate was. Um, bishop and that Ha, got them who a lot is the current back, auxiliary right? bishop. Auxiliary. Um, or whether they might try someone who is uh, thought to be sort of a pro-Beijing sympathetic guy as their second candidate was. Um, which is Father Choi. Which is Father Choi, who they have not had anything. Or whether they uh, will find someone who uh, does not have a, a sort of, whether they will find someone who is not sort of have a reputation for political engagement, which I think would be a, a great frustration for everybody because of the tremendous social change and transition that Hong Kong is in right now and the role of the church among pro-democracy activists like uh, like like Jimmy Lai and Chow and, and these others. So it's, it's not clear that anybody's going to want to take the job because it's a very difficult job at a very difficult moment. And, you know, there's, there's not clarity about what the Holy See expects the church will do. And I think that probably makes it more difficult on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, also, the, you know, sort of swirling around all of this is, of course, the Vatican-China deal. And it's not at right. all clear um, to what extent either the Chinese or the Holy See consider the terms of that arrangement to apply to Hong Kong. Because To apply to Hong we, Kong, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we don't we don't know for, for a certainty because obviously the, the actual terms of that agreement have not been made public. But I mean, it's certainly from what I've understood um, speaking to people, uh, it was not at least as originally agreed in... 2018 um, intended to apply to Hong Kong because at that point Hong Kong was 
a different thing. It was it was a different place. It was a special administrative region that the government of Hong Kong looked a different way, acted a different way. The church in Hong Kong acted a different way than it did on the mainland, and it was subject to um, all sorts of different uh, standards and you know regarding free speech, the you know the dissemination of catechetical materials, all sorts of stuff. But that all appears to be changing now, and you know. I, I don't know. I'm I'm very nervous. I'm getting more nervous by the day about the diocese of Hong Kong because, you know, the, the current apostolic administrator is is Cardinal John Tong Han, and mm-hmm. uh, he's he's over eighty. Yeah, you know, he he can't continue leading the diocese that he's already retired from once uh, indefinitely. Yeah, and I, I guess my my expectation is, and I mean, I don't want to sort of you know, I don't want to doomcast here but i mean eventually cardinal tong will be able to carry on uh-huh. and right. and when he can't and even there is no longer even an administrator in charge somebody is going to name a bishop of hong kong right and i think if the holy see uh doesn't choose to assert its not just its authority but its inalienable right to name the bishop of hong kong i worry that the mainland government will do it for them, which I have some reason to suspect they may have done once before on the mainland, just appointing a bishop and announcing it as a fait accompli and then daring Rome to say, no, we don't recognize this guy because we weren't consulted. And I I worry if if they do that and if they get away with it in Hong Kong, you know, that that's as far as I can see, that would be about the end uh, in in terms of any hope of clawing back uh, a reasonable accommodation for the people. Yeah. uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm very nervous. I, I want to kind of take that. I want to sort of take what's happening in Hong Kong with the church and juxtapose it to what's happening um, with the church in another part of the world that is in chaos right now. But it's a, it's chaos of a different sort because um, I want to talk about Haiti. And, uh, and there's a reason I want to talk about Haiti, which is that it has it has everything to do with, I think, a bunch of interesting questions about the, the relationship of the church to civil society and especially the relationship of church, the church to governments. Um, Haiti. Uh, a nation on the Caribbean island of Hispaniola uh, is right now. I just I want to give the background in case there's someone listening who has never like seen the globe. Um, but uh, Haiti um, right now is in the throes of a constitutional crisis. You know, Haiti is one of the poorest and least developed countries in the world. Haiti is it, it is amazing to me. It is almost unfathomable to me um, that um, you know less than less than two hours by plane, less than a day's journey by by even boat, between um, some of the richest addresses in the richest part, in, in some of the richest zip codes in the richest nation, you know, in the world, um, uh, less than two hours from there are some of uh, the poorest addresses, if you can call them addresses, and some of the poorest zip codes in, in one of the poorest nations in the world. Um, the, the disparity between the poverty, the, the, the generational poverty of, uh, of Haiti and um, uh, uh, the wealth, which is not sort of which is not sort of um, homogenized in the United States, but the wealth that exists in the United States uh, for some um, is uh, profound and um, almost enough. Really, I mean, the, the disparity between uh, the the excess wealth and consumption that exists for some, but not all, in the United States, because our wealth is not homogenized by any stretch of the imagination, and um, the crippling generational poverty of Haitians is almost enough to make you despair. I mean, almost enough to just really, to break your heart, to think, to, to think of, of how poor, uh, how, how, how 
limited are the re- the access to um, you know sort of basic infrastructural and hygiene resources like clean running water and a toilet um, are for uh, how, how difficult it is to access those things for for many many people in the nation of Haiti and to juxtapose that with the excesses of consumption that are glor- glorified and lionized in our own country is is enough to break your heart um, but that's just my aside for a moment. But uh, Haiti, one of the poorest nations in the world uh, on the island of Hispaniola, is in the throes of a constitutional crisis. And the reason for that is because the guy who is uh, the president of Haiti is elected to a five-year term. And there's a disparity, essentially. There's a disagreement, essentially, about when he was actually elected and when his term actually began. And uh, the church and uh, most activists and most human rights activists in Haiti and uh, most legal scholars in Haiti uh, and much of the international community says that his term ended in February, but he says that his term actually ends next year because of some huckabuck in the electoral process, and so he has uh, refused to vacate office. And because he's re- and and he refused to vacate office, not just sort of by saying I'm going to stay here, but by um, arresting everybody who has said very loud that he should vacate office, especially those in the government who oppose him or are in another party. And um, as a result of that, Haiti is. Um, by the judgment of the legal experts of its own, you know, its own constitutional scholars, Haiti's government is essentially at this point being held hostage by someone who doesn't have a democratic right um, to do so. Uh, Haiti is in the throes of a constitutional crisis, and it's not the first one. Haiti, um, for a variety of reasons, for a variety of really heartbreaking reasons, this is not a whole podcast on the history of Haiti, but for a variety of heartbreaking reasons, Haiti is... um, rife with systematic and serial government corruption, the kind which leads to uh, frequent uh, the frequent occupation of the power of the halls of power by uh, brutal brutal dictators uh, and corrupt fellas. And Haiti's at one of those points right now, and because Haiti's in a constitutional crisis, and there are some things going on with its economy, lots of things going on with its economy, which is bad even in the best situation, but is even worse than that right now. Um, there's just uh, ha- Haiti is kind of fall, falling apart at the seams even compared to normal. And one of the things that has um, happened as a result of that is a rise of uh, street gangs. You ha- when you have lawlessness, um, you often have uh, the power vacuum that leads to kind of a rise of just, uh, you know, c- criminal enterprises, street gangs, and all, all kinds of violence. And that's happening in Haiti right now. And um, so there are some street gangs in Port-au-Prince that have become extremely, extremely powerful, certainly far more powerful than the government by most, by many, many metrics. And uh, at the same time, there are a lot of protest movements going on to kind of try to oust the guy who's holding on to power seemingly illegally. And so Haiti is just in the throes of kind of chaos. And um, in the midst of that chaos, a lot of difficult things have been happening. A lot of religious leaders have been being kidnapped for ransom. So what happens when a country devolves into lawlessness is that people who are entrepreneurial realize that the police are not protecting anyone, uh, not protecting the rule of law, and so they look around for people who might be worth something to people with, de- with deep pockets. And so um, uh, uh, some religious, some Protestant evangelical um, religious ministers had been kid- have been kidnapped for ransom, and on Divine Mercy Sunday, uh, a couple of priests, a couple of religious sisters, and their families uh, were kidnapped as well and are being held for a million dollars ransom. Um, some of them are French. One of the priests is French, and I think one of the family members is French. And for the street gangs... That gives them the opportunity to cloak their uh, their kidnapping in the language of sort of political being political revolutionaries because they say yes we're holding these French guys because France is France is responsible for um, the profound despair and dysfunction of Haiti. The history of relationship between France and Haiti is complicated, interesting, 
um, and you know, not with, not without considerable debate, but n- not our point exactly here either. But that has get, allowed these guys to to say, well, actually, this is a political protest, but France must pay us, and the church must pay us, and we have to get our million dollars. Um, and uh, the government seems to be unable to do anything about that. The church is speaking out. Um, this is where I think there's a, an alignment. As Haiti descends into a very different kind of transformational moment than is Hong Kong, but one in which um, whatever vestige of the law, rule of law had applied is not not even applying now, um, the church has not been on, on the fence or equivocating or trying to decide whether it will capitulate to power or not. The church has been speaking out. There are 10 dioceses in Haiti, and the bishops of Haiti have been unified in calling for the president to resign his—to to, to give up his office— um, in calling for the government to fix cor- to end corruption, and the church has been exercising two kinds of power: um, soft, the soft power of influence and the hard, real, significant power of spiritual power. So, what that means is that bishops have been offering masses and, and urging the priests of Haiti to offer masses uh, for peace and reparation, and um, that has been ticking people off. I mean, they're having these very public masses, and people are getting. inordinately angry about it. Um, And at the same time, the church, which runs a ton of institutions in Haiti, most of the functional things in in, in Haiti um, are Catholic or Catholic-connected, many of them at least. And so the church has been calling for these strikes. It's in the middle right now of a three-day strike of basically all Catholic institutions except those that immediately serve the poor or our hospitals. It had another one last week. And when the church strikes, a lot of Catholic-owned businesses strike. So basically many, many, many of the functional things that exist in Haiti sort of shut down um, all at once. The church is flexing its muscles, not because it thinks that it can oust, um, you know, that thinks it can oust the president by going on strike, but because it knows that it can draw considerable international attention to what is happening um, by using the resources at its disposal. And there are consequences to that. The bishops had a mass this weekend um, outside of Port-au-Prince, and the police fired tear gas on the crowd. And um, bishops are being threatened by the street gangs and by the police. Um, bishops face the prospect of arrest for speaking out against the government. Priests face the prospect of arrest for speaking out against the government. And they also face the prospect of just getting pummeled into the ground by the street gangs against whom they're speaking out. But the church is speaking out and speaking out and speaking out. And I believe uh, that that is going to, you know, that the the graces of that are profound, but also that they have drawn more attention to the plight of Haiti, and that may well motivate uh, the international community, the, the powers that are able to, to make influence actually, you know, pay more attention to Haiti, right? AP is picking up stories about these church strikes because they're significant. Other international news outlets are doing the same, and that will lead to transformation. But it's coming from this, you know, I, I think a powerful and encouraging witness of the church just being a prophetic witness in an extremely complicated and chaotic and crappy time. And, you and know, uh, that, how's, the, how's the church doing being a prophetic witness in Hong Kong, J.D.? Well, that's why I'm juxtaposing it, right? So in Hong Kong, yeah. the church has got this sclerosis, right? The church has got sclerosis. Well, there are people. There are bishops. You know, the, there's, a bishop went to the protests. Um, there are priests who have gone to the protests. There are lay, Catholic, lay Catholics especially are leading um, the push, you know, the push for human rights in China. But on and they're the whole, going to jail. They're going to jail for it, right? Willingly. But on the whole, there's a sclerosis um, – you know, uh, an institutional sclerosis where when schools are told you're going to to, to make sure that you you um, teach you know patriotic values, even those which contravene your religious identity, there is a there is a capitulation or at least some element of capitulation, and that element of capitulation, you know, the 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 danger is you know so there's balance right because 
there are church leaders who say, okay, well, we don't want people to get arrested. We you know, we don't want to see more persecution. We don't want to see our churches padlocked. Um, we have these concerns, um, and so we will just sort of see the ways in which we can capitulate or, or in which we can collaborate or the degree to which we can sort of stretch ourselves in order to find a neutral ground. You understand that. You're empathetic to that. You're empathetic to people who are the who have the care of souls saying, we don't want to see more people suffer longer, you know, more and longer, or we want to try to have a seat at the table as these things are worked out. But I honestly believe, Ed, all the time, I honestly believe truly and truly that the only power that the church has that's meaningful, that is effective, that is proven to be transformational in any real way is the cross, and that we lose our way when we start to think that Things like getting a seat at the table or temporal considerations or sort of strategic engagement are going um, to secure the rights of believers. They never do, first of all. And second of all, the temporal rights of believers are subordinate to our uh, our alignment and unity with the cross. Uh, and I would simply add to that that rarely has much been won for the freedom of the faith uh, by any activity which can, as you did, accu- accurately be described as collaboration. Right. That's right. That's right. It's it's not something with a long track record of success in terms of diplomacy in the church or anywhere else in the world. You know, there's been um, uh, there's been this sort of attempt in the last couple of years by some uh, some people with I I would argue uh, very limited experience of either Vatican diplomacy or um, Catholicism as lived in China, who have attempted to sort of whitewash the Ostpolitik. Uh, chapter of 20th century Vatican diplomacy, which was by all accounts a crushing disaster, um, and turn it into something that's no, it was actually very, very smart and very fruitful, and it, it wasn't. Um, but there, there is, it's the sort of fad of, you know, there's always, I mean, appeasement always has, um, it always has its fans because it's the, it's the easier option. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Like and I said, and I'm, it is I'm the one that nervous. seems to be often temporarily sem- sensible, right? I'm a dad. I don't want, you know, if I had to make choices that would lead to my children, I, you know, I believe in the efficacy of suffering. I believe in the sanctity of, um, of, of the glorified suffering of the cross, and I believe in the efficacy of, of uniting my suffering to that suffering. But if my, but I, I believe those things, and maybe I'll even submit to them. Maybe I'm pretty weak. But my kid, you know, to think that my kid would suffer well. You know, I understand why ecclesial leaders sometimes think we don't want our flock to suffer in a paternal, you know, in a, in, a, in a, out of a genuine kind of paternalism, paternalism that is perhaps um, too that perhaps too quickly becomes focused on protecting the baptized from from the vocation of baptism, which is the cross, um, out of a desire not to see them suffer. Now, again, it is extremely easy for me to say that from a country in which. Um, you know, in which I live in this country of, of excessive comfort and excessive wealth. Um, but it is, you know, I don't have to make the judgments that either Haitian or Hong Kong ecclesiastical leaders have to make. But any study of Christian history will tell you that um, there's no protecting ourselves from the cross. There's only the question of whether or not we'll embrace it. And the degree to which we embrace it is the degree to which the, the church triumphs. Right. Okay. But the, the other thing is that the... The situation of the church in Hong Kong is not isolated. It's it's directly linked to the situation of the church in the mainland, which is itself directly linked to the situation of human rights generally on in China on the mainland, and where you have open air concentration camps with more than a million people and systematic genocide being carried out against an entire ethnic population. 
it's you know to sort of say well we don't want that to come for the church it's coming for the church it's coming for the church that, exactly of course it's coming for the church exactly. and ha- mounting a policy of you know temporary appeasement saying well you know we don't want to turn the spotlight on to onto catholics it's like well fine but i mean that's so absurd. you know this is this is literally holding uh, you know, feeding other people to the dragon in the hopes that it'll you last. It's not going to work. Yeah. It, this is nothing yeah. good is going to come of this except the the church will continue to bleed its moral authority on the diplomatic stage from this. I it, it makes me so depressed. Well, I want to talk about another piece of this. Okay, I want to talk about another piece of this, which is sort of um, a Christian perspective. You know, uh, the perspective of believers on the church's relationship to government, and um, the reason is because here we have examples of two different kinds of governments, um, both sort of descending into the kind of chaos that leads to profound, um, profound and serious abuses of human rights. And um, as I look at that, I, um, I Ed, uh, am increasingly convinced that um, you know. Um, while we as believers have an obligation of obedience to temporal powers insofar as the temporal ordinances do not conflict with divine law and et cetera, et cetera, I'm nevertheless increasingly convinced that the truth of the matter is that temporal governance devolves in any number of directions away from justice um, because of the the human condition of sin. And the reason I say that is because there's a lot of talk, you know, I think these two things, China and Haiti are both examples of this, right? Temporal authority devolves away from justice because of the conditions of sin. And, um, you know, we can secure certain kinds of liberties and and make efforts to secure certain kinds of justice um, from temporal authorities, and we should. We should try to make sure that laws are ordinances of right reason in as much as we're able to. But there's a danger, I think, for believers of of many stripes. There's a danger, I think, for believers of putting too much stock, hope, or expectation, or just sort of um, lacking skepticism, uh, cynicism, and apprehension about temporal powers, because the story of Christian history, but the story of human history, is that um, power devolves away from justice. And, uh, you know, there is a, a, a constant conversation among Catholics and Catholic intellectuals who are politically engaged, especially about sort of like what, you know, what is the, what form of government ought believers pursue, and to what degree ought believers sort of support um, movements, uh, p- political movements, or um, or even sort of um, political ideologies um, of various kinds, you know, sort of like to what degree should believers be integralists or to what believers should to degree should believers like really sort of um, wholly give themselves over to to faith in American representative, representative democracy. And, uh, and and I think just there's there's a necessity as we examine Christian history to just o- always be skeptical about the idea that those who hold the reins of temporal powers will um, submit themselves to um, to the gospel and uh, and will have um, the right and the common good um, before their eyes for very long at least. And I, I think these things just give examples of that. Yeah, it, it, it never—yeah. The, <laughs> the, the reason human history doesn't stand still and the reason why, um, you know, we're constantly inventing and reinventing— new governing and constitutional orders the reason we have cataclysmic wars the reason we have you know all of this stuff the reason the history doesn't stand still is because everything that is built by humanity eventually falls over so are you saying that the wages of sin is death ed i am jd i am also saying that everything fashioned out of the clay of this earth like clay will shatter Mm -hmm. um and you know i well i'm i we don't need to i don't want to i don't want to go down the cul-de-sac of the the sort of um, silly intellectual. I'm 
I'm not using a word here, um, a silly intellectual form of self-gratification, which, uh, which is more concerned with a sort of, you know, alternate Habsburg dominated fan fiction version of history, uh, than it is with actually announcing the gospel and discussing how the church, uh, herself can better engage with human society, uh, for the salvation of souls and the proclamation of the gospel. I think anything that, uh, has anything other than that as its central focus is, um, it, it's not a constructive exercise and it's not what I meant. I, I tend to give much time or attention to. Um, at, the, at the very least, it's a subordinate exercise to the proclamation of the kingdom. I, I, I probably get on this too much, but the, the idea that the church will better flourish if she ushers in the right form—this is what I was trying to get at. The idea that the church will better flourish if she ushers in the right form of government or if she sort of conceptualizes the right form of government is not realistic about sort of the wickedness of the human condition. And well, it is true that—go ahead. It's, it's not just not realistic. It's bullshit. What will <laughs> help the church— is saints right no no secular form of government no um you know accommodation list or dominating or partnership arrangement or separation of church and state or intrinsic alignment of church and state none of that is ever going to make a blind bit of difference because it has all gone disastrously wrong at some point in history the only thing in different directions in different directions right yeah in different directions yeah that's the problem is there are so many ways you can go wrong yeah but but it always goes wrong because right, right, that's right. The, the exercise of temporal human governments is always going to be flawed and informed primarily by sin. That, that, that's the nature of it. Um, what what does matter is that the church has saints and offers a prophetic witness to the resurrection. That that that's all that matters. <laughs> that that that's yeah. it. Everything I'm we not... have needs to just support that central aim. And anything that isn't that central aim is a, it's a waste of the church's time. I, I'm not advocating sort of political indifferentism. Um, whole, wholesale political no, but it's political engagement that has the gospel at its core. Like what? It, it's like, it, yeah. I I don't I don't I don't want to wholesale engagement that has the gospel at its core is pragmatic enough to sort of see see the world as it is. Be be wholly skeptical that any sort of particular kind of regime is going to be immune from the ordinary conditions of human wickedness, and um, ha- has as its primary kind of lens. Um, the coming, uh, the second coming of the Lord, and if we have as our primary lens the second coming of the Lord, then we kind of can see very quickly what I think the early church saw very well, which is that our relationship to temporal powers is subordinated to um, our own coming judgment, but also the coming judgment of others who might um, otherwise hear the gospel and be assured of their salvation by virtue of our proclamation thereof. And if we if we sort of lose sight of that because we get sort of so focused in well in the long term what thing will best sort of assure the position of the church. The problem is that um, we we may sort of be making a presumption. Uh, I, I, I don't want to sound radical here, but I think there, there is a sort of radical expectation of Christianity that needs we needs to be baked into our worldview. We may sort of be, be making the assumption that we have more time than we do. The Lord is actually coming, and our imperative is like to actually uh, uh, be assured of our own salvation and to, to call others to salvation it, it, as we as we anticipate that well this is the thing that it constantly uh, comes to my mind and it it's a grisly image but it's one that everyone else keeps making so i'm i don't blame myself for having co-opted it somewhat which is everyone keeps talking about every election is a plane crash election like you know you gotta you know <laughs> the most the important election going, in our lifetime yeah but i mean the image that i often hear and i find it extremely distasteful is a flight 93 
A Flight 93 election. Give now to our pack because it's the most important Flight 93 election in our lifetime. Exactly. Sorry, and you just, see I've been writing from, political commercials on the side. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, both political parties have, have used this analogy. Certainly commentators on both sides have used this political analogy, and I find it incredibly distasteful. Um, and I would imagine anyone who had family on UA Flight 93 would find it even Flight more distasteful. Flight would anyway. find that incredibly insensitive, yes. Yes, but they do it anyway because, you know, everything is politics in this country. But, you know, there are people, there is a species of Catholicism um, in this country on on both, you know, left political left and right who seem to, to be convinced that the, the plane is flying into the mountain. And their answer is, well, we need the church to take control of the plane. It's like, no, the, the plane is going down. The function of the church is... If you've got if you've got the church on the plane, the function of the church on the plane is for the priest to stand up get and get anointing. Yeah, right, and anointing exactly. people. Like, you, you, yeah, exactly. We don't need yeah. another pilot if a plane's going into the mountain. We need I, again. I I just get so frustrated with the whole thing. I, I find it crazy. Now, I'm not saying what I'm not saying is that the but church. It's, but it, what's at the core of it, JD, is this. It, what's at the core of this, and this is why it makes me so angry, and so I find it so repellent um, as as a as a sort of you know long and wide current in Catholic discourse is that its core is it's a fascination with power. That's mm-hmm, what it betrays mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that it's not concerned with the evangelization. It's not concerned with the salvation of souls. It's not concerned with the proclamation of the kingdom. It's concerned with the acquisition of power for conservative or progressive or liberal or, you know, conser- right wing or, you know, Republican or Democrat, whatever. The, the, the bottom line is it's always fascinated with, well, how can I, how can I tell people what to do? And so that's that's not what the church is for. Yeah. The church's job is to announce the resurrection. And if that's not what fires you up about the church, if what fires you up about the church is, well, how can we use this as a mechanism for structuring society and bringing order and you know imposing our our vision? And, and for, thereby you know, sort of inculcating people into the life of the church by habituating them to good. I mean, it's not that there's nothing good to be said in that. It's just that, uh, as you say, no, but. The motivating factor behind it is, as as is often said explicitly, will to power. It's like mm-hmm. the gospel isn't about will to yeah. power. The In fact, the most scandalous, right? And the most, yeah, that's exactly right. The most sort of scandalous reality of being a Christian is is handing oneself over in imitation of the Lord in, into 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 uh, even into powerlessness, right? Which is not you know all of the qualifications thereupon into powerlessness. Yeah. Again, Christ was very clear in the Garden of Gethsemane, as I recall. Like, look, if I wanted to stage a coup, I I could do that. That's not why I'm here. And and that goes back to the Haitian bishops because I I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but we are. Um, That goes back. I never know what we're going to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. That goes back to the Haitian bishops, Ed, because um, what we're talking about does not mean, as I said before, political indifferentism. It doesn't sort of mean like completely ignoring. Temporal realities. On the contrary, like what the church in Haiti no, it means is doing denouncing is speaking, genocide in Xinjiang right, province. It yeah, means yeah, and advocating and, and, and for the poor, sort of lawlessness, uh, lawlessness in Haiti. Right, because what the church is doing is exercising a prophetic ministry to speak to, to speak the truth, and and then I, hopefully to be able to sort of speak the way in which the Lord is moving in in, in the truth um, is to be a prophet. But the church is exercising in Haiti a prophetic ministry. She's doing so though with a kind of. Um, to, you know, to have this mass, to have these strikes, to put oneself between street gangs and a dictator um, is a certain kind of um, uh, holy recklessness, right? Um, I, I'm not sort of saying that the church in Haiti is perfect. I'm sure it's not, uh, you know, but but that demonstrates a kind of holy recklessness that strikes me as at the heart of Christian social engagement, which is to tell the truth uh, 
um, as we see it and discern it, um, not just about what what happened um, 2,000 years ago in a manger or on a cross, but about what that means uh, for right now in, in the concrete realities of this moment, what Jesus Christ, the incarnation, means in, in this moment about these real things, you know, about these other, these really existing things. That is prophetic, um, but it is doing, but it is, it is doing it sort of, as, as you say, with a proclamation towards repentance and towards a, a conversion towards Christ, rather than a sort of a, give us the, give us the wheels of power and we'll make it better. Yeah. Yeah. What else do you want to say I about mean, that? It, well, I was, I was say it goes the other way too. Um, the, you know, the exercising a prophetic witness that there are those who issue just be saying, well, we can't do anything about temporal circumstances. Right. So what's not talking about Archbishop Gallagher, who is basically the, the Holy See's chief diplomat this week in sort of quasi response to the situation in Hong Kong said he didn't think that there was anything to be gained by the church making grandstanding statements about human rights in China or in Hong yeah. Kong. And it's like, well, you, you, you might consider that, um, the people who are suffering active persecution might be in some way consoled in their situation by knowing that the church recognizes and defends uh, their rights and dignity. Maybe. I Maybe. don't know. <laughs> Indeed. Worth considering. Indeed. And, uh, yeah, take, take, take under consideration, as it were. Well, this is a good conversation. We are, though, as it happens, coming towards the end of our time together. Oh, and I'm realizing I didn't, I didn't devise a game. You didn't. I no, I was supposed to, and I apologize for that. That's I okay. I'll do it. Oh, do you have one? Do you actually? No, have I mean one? I don't. I don't have one, but I think I can make. I think I can catch one together out of out of something for you. I'll do what or, I can. I tend to overanalyze these things. I will spend a good hour from doing a game, and you you're much better at being spontaneous about it. Um, but you are you are a more spontaneous and fun kind of guy, JD. Is that true? I. At least compared to me, I... is that why we're friends? I yes, yes. Okay, Ed. Uh, Hong Kong is where? 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 Where is Hong Kong geographically? I don't mean politically. Where is Hong Kong geographically? Um, it's off the coast of China. What? What? What delta? Ah, uh, that. Oh, is the Pearl a good River point. Delta. Well, you're right. The Pearl River does go through. Okay, yeah. Hong Kong is lo- situated in the Pearl River Delta. So I'm going to give you here some Pearl trivia. <laughs> okay. How's that for pulled it out of nothing? Uh, definitely, definitely unexpected. Looking forward to it. Okay, Ed, here is some Pearl trivia that I'm, I'm literally, you know, I feel bad because this podcast, the truth is, now I'm just talking, the truth is this podcast, Ed, is one of our flagship sort of flags of, uh, one of our flagship flagships of the, the entire Pillar Media Project. And, and one would think that, you know, I might have something in advance or whatever. I feel bad that I'm catching this game together, but I'd like to think that people like that I catch the, 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 uh, the thing together. Look, the podcast is what it is, and it's it's only ever been one thing, which is we start recording on a Thursday afternoon, and what we talk about, we talk about. Um, so hopefully if people are continuing to listen to this, they, they know what they're getting, which is, okay, you don't know what's going to happen. You're right. Okay. You ready? Yeah. We're going to do some, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you, I'm, and we're going to call this Pearls of Wisdom. Okay. Here we go. Pearls of Wisdom, number one. Ed. Pearls are the birthstone for what month? August. 
Oh, wow. What, what was your reasoning there? I had a 1 in 12 chance. Okay, well, you were wrong, but close. Pearls are the birthstone for July, Ed. Pearls oh. are the traditional gift for what wedding anniversary in the United States? Um. Okay, hang on. I know 50 is gold. I know 75 is diamond. No, 60 is diamond. Um, 75 is platinum. Uh, 30 is ruby. Uh, I'm going to... Five years? 30 years. Well done, Ed. Well done. No, 30 you is are... ruby, isn't it? According to this thing that I just found one minute ago, pearls are the 30-year anniversary thing. Oh, rats. Well, I'm I'm not 30 years into my marriage yet, so I don't have to... I don't need to know that. Fair enough. Ed, most pearls, as you know, are, um, are, are cultured. They're, they're grown, and they're grown in freshwater. Far more valuable is a saltwater pearl, and especially a sort of wild-found or wild-caught saltwater pearl. How often is a, is, is a usable, uh, you know, a, a valuable um, natural pearl found um, among wild oysters? Like how many wild oysters do you think you need to open before you find one natural pearl of value? Uh, I'm going to go with one in a thousand. Wow. You were close, but believe it or not, Ed, it is one in 10,000. One in 10,000. Wow. Ten, you mean, got to open 10,000 pearls to find a, uh, excuse me, you got to open 10,000 oysters to find a pearl of even mon- Would you, would you like price. to know a personal, an interesting personal fact about me? Yeah, sure. So I don't know about you, but when I was in my 20s, and I hadn't, I hadn't had all of the jobs that I, I now have. Um, you know, the, the rule with resumes, I think, is fairly well established that you should keep it to a page, right? Like a lot, less and less. Kids are more and more making, rolling their resume into pages and pages. But that has been the standard, especially in our youth. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there was a point in my life and career where I, I struggled to fill a page, you know, because you're on your sure, first or yeah. second job. Um, and so, you know, I still had the thing that some people have on their resumes when they're first out of university saying, you know, skills or hobbies or, you know, mm-hmm. other interests or, you know, whatever else. And I put um, competitive oyster sexing as a wow. as a skill and hobby of mine on an app, on a real resume that I submitted for a real job. And I, believe it or not, I, I got the interview. I was later hired for the job. And in the interview, I was asked about my assertion that I, w- I, I was a competitive oyster sexer. And, and what uh, did you tell them? I told them it's true that I can tell the difference. It was not well, true. One... I can't tell the difference. And I'm allergic to oysters. I'm going to tell you but... how to tell the difference right now. Really? There is a way yeah. you can tell. There is a way you can tell the difference. And this is fascinating. One way to tell the difference um, of the sex, the sex difference of an oyster is to ask it how old it is. Because oysters change their sex during their lives. Oysters begin their lives as males, and over the course of their lives, their reproductive organs actually transform such that they end their lives on the female end of the oyster mating equation. Nah, uh, anathema sit. This sounds like a false anthropology to me. I don't no. accept this at all. This is this is true. The, 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 uh, the sex organs of oysters transform from performing one role to performing another role over the course of the oyster's lifespan. I can only assume what kind of amoral debauchery goes on in oyster oh, gosh, farms. Yeah. Then. And in college when it's all just sort of, you know, in the middle, it's really a bad time for oysters everywhere. Yeah. Okay, Ed, what, um, how much do you think the largest known pearl in the world weighs? More or less than 10 pounds? 
I immediately have to say more than 10 pounds, but I, I mean. Good. You want to keep rolling the dice? More or less than 25 pounds? Now, you can't go over. That's the game. So you decide how long to keep rolling the dice. More or less than 25 pounds. Okay. Um, okay. So here's. Okay. But this is a wild pearl you're talking about, yes? This is the largest known pearl. I, I, I presume, I, yes, I believe that it's a wild pearl for a variety of reasons. But again, I'm I trying to think of the size of the. For exactly as long as we have been playing this pearl game. I understand. I, I'm just trying to imagine so the size know, of the oyster one required step to ahead produce. Of you. Now, don't forget that oyster. That don't forget. I just learned one second ago. But you may not know that um, oyster that uh, pearls can also be produced by wa- giant clams. Okay, you know what a giant clam is. Uh, is there more to it than the words suggest? No, no, no. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a giant clam. It's giant clam. Okay, I'm going to say over 25 pounds, JD. I'm going to press my luck. Wow, Ed. Well done. You want to keep rolling? More or less? Let's get crazy now. Than 50 pounds. Yes, more than 50 pounds. <laughs> Good one. You are, you are rolling the dice here, and you are There's correct. a lot at stake for that, me. I, I'm really sweating this. There is a lot at stake for you. Now, are you ready, Ed? Is the world's largest pearl more or less? Is the world's largest pearl more or less than 75 pounds? Less. Oh, I'm sorry. Want to guess again? It can't be more. okay. Just tell me how 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 heavy. Do you want to guess again? Thing? Do you want to guess again? Well, I, 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 is I it mean, more okay, or less? I, well, I guess it. Must, well, if I'm going to guess again, I, I'm assuming it's over seventy five pounds. So oh, I'm, I'm sorry. The world's largest pearl is exactly seventy five pounds. Ed, the pearl of Puerto. Found in the Philippines by a fisherman from Puerto Princesa, Palawan Island, the enormous pearl is 30 centimeters wide, which is about a foot, 67 centimeters long, which is a little more than two feet, and weighs 75 pounds. If you're in Canada, that's 34 kilograms. 75 pounds at the world's largest pearl, the Pearl of Puerto. That's a big pearl. You want to see a picture of it? Sure. Uh, too bad. I just, I'm literally just finding out about this right now, and I don't have it. <laughs> I, 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 uh, you learn something new every week. Well, I'll tell you what you are, Ed. You're a pearl of great price. Don't ever change, buddy. <laughs> I, I'm just amazed that you managed to get through a pearl-themed quiz and you didn't throw a single Pearl Jam question at me. No, I didn't throw a single. That would have been great. That would have been great. That would have, Tanner Vitalogy. What, Vitalogy, what kind of guy are you? Like, what's your, what's your Pearl Jam, go-to Pearl Jam album? Uh, I don't have a go-to Pearl Jam album. I'll be honest, if I have a go-to Pearl Jam song, it's Eddie Vader's quasi-Pearl Jam, quasi-solo project, which was Someday They'll Go All The Way, which was the song he would sing about one day the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series. Oh, but he couldn't sing it because the Chicago Cubs did win the World Series, right? I mean, he wrote it before 2016. They They won won. in 2016. Yeah. And was Bartman still on the team then? I don't know that much about... that, too obvious, JD. You, you you usually are very good at trolling me, but I mean on that one. You're a pearl was too of great obvious. price, Ed. The, was Sammy Sosa on the team in 2016? He's a he's a Cub. Uh, no, no. Sammy Sosa was no longer playing for the Cubs. Is he your favorite Cub? Is he the greatest no. Cub ever? Is Sammy Sosa the greatest Cub ever? I think he is. Didn't he have more home runs than every other Cub ever? ever are you trying to tempt me into saying something? possibly actionable in a legal forum on this point. I would say that That's there is a body there is a body of evidence out there to suggest it's just possible, though I guess unproven in a legal context, but there are there are people who have expressed 
credible suspicions that Sammy Sosa may have had um, help in his home run hitting uh, that was not necessarily all attained by lifting weights. If you don't know what we're talking about, friends, Sammy Sosa was a hero of what they once called the steroid era of baseball. And with that, we're The Pillar Podcast. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Join. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and newfound friend, Ed Condon. We'll be back next week. God bless. Don't let anyone say that it's just a game For I've seen other teams and it's never the same When you're born in Chicago, you're blessed and you're healed The first time you walk into Wrigley Heroes wear pinstripes, heroes in blue Give us the chance to feel like heroes too Forever we'll win and if we should lose We know someday we'll go all the way Yeah, someday we'll go all the way He did it! We are one with the Cubs, with the Cubs we're in love yeah, hold our head high as the underdogs We are not fair weather, but foul weather fans Like brothers in arms in the streets and the stands There's magic in the ivy in the old scoreboard The same when I stared at as a kid keeping score In a world full of greed, I could never want more And someday we'll go out of Teaching us faith and giving us hope United we stand and united we'll fall Down to our knees the day we win it all Yeah, her name ain't said, oh, let's play too How did it mean 200 years? In the same ballpark, a diamond, our jewel The home of our joy and our tears Traditions and wishes made new A place where our grandfathers, fathers, they grew A spiritual feeling if I ever knew And if you ain't been, I am sorry for you When the day comes for that last winning run And I'm crying and covered in beer I look to the sky and know I was right To think someday we'll go all the way Yeah Someday